and welcome everyone to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source in the long haul. Who are we? Where did we come from? Where are we going? How do I steer this thing? We have three panelists besides me on the show today. We have Justin Dorfman. Hello. Eric Berry. Hey there. Alan Gunner, who is currently on mute, but will return eventually. And Dominic Tarr. Hi. Dominic is a open source sailor hacker person. He's been pretty instrumental in the early JavaScript scene, as far as I'm aware. And he's currently calling from his boat, or is it a yacht? I, I, I never know the difference. In New Zealand. Dominic, how are you doing today? Uh, good, thanks. Yeah, a yacht is just a fancy boat. That's what I thought. Yeah. But yeah. isn't like a boat, technically, a boat can go on another ship? So like a dinghy is a boat, right? Yeah, I consider like pretty much anything that floats a boat. Okay, cool. That works pretty well. I've heard yachties make a huge distinction. I also just realized I didn't like those people. So maybe there is and a distinction. The, there's also like, I think in American English, it's like a sailboat is more common and yacht is like, anyway, who cares about that stuff? No it doesn't matter that yeah. much. Could you tell us a bit how you got into open source or how you got into coding in general and how you ended up where you are today? Well, I originally started coding by playing video games back when I was a teenager. And I just always had like ideas like, oh, this game's okay, but it would be way cooler if the game was like this and you could do that. So I had this urge to be able to make the games. Okay, this was like, the mid nineties lived on a farm in New Zealand and we had like dial up. The best was like 56 K modem with $2.50 an hour to use the internet. Yeah. Wow. So this was like, you know, a very, very small hole and time on the computer was like rationed between (laughs) my siblings. We strictly got like half an hour at a time. So it's probably getting more content from the game magazines that had like a CD that came with a CD attached. One of those CDs had a thing called Quake C on it. All of the game logic for C, like the rendering engine was like written in C++ or whatever. It had this like interpreted language that was like the game logic, like what the monsters did and the that sort of stuff. That was, you know, what all that the actual like game logic was in that. And the CD had this on it. And I was like, oh, now I can change Quake. And I had either I had pirated Quake or a Shearware Quake or something like that. Suddenly I was controlling the Matrix. Like basically, that's how I learned. I just was doing that. So you started hacking away. You made some pretty sweet mods to Quake. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. How did yeah. you get involved with JavaScript? I know that well, you were pretty instrumental there. I mean, I was early in Node, the Node.js scene. But, but JavaScript had already existed for like 96, I think. More on there. And Node was like 2009, I think. So in between those things, I had some other stuff. I'd gone to university and studied computer science. Yep. But to be honest, learned a lot more going to parties and things like that. Then in the last year of university, I also built a boat. This was like the sailing canoe. So it had like a big hull and then a small... It's like Polynesian style. with like an outrigger. Yes, an outrigger with a, a sail that was just made out of a tarpaulin 
from the warehouse, which is the local like big box box store. Yep. And I sailed that. I spent the whole summer like sailing that around and sleeping on beaches and stuff like that. Ending up in this happy commune that was like the, near the, the furthest reach of like my journey. And I stayed there for a while and I was like, well, this is really cool. You can just like grow vegetables and hang out. And I sort of realized like I could just become a hippie, but that would be like too easy. I felt I should give polite society a fair chance and I should go to the city and get a job and see what that's like. And so I did that. I found out it sucked. It was like, (laughs) it was like just a total waste of time. You know, I would be like riding my bike to work or something like that. And I'd see the middle management people like sitting in the traffic in their BMWs, like at the traffic lights. And I was like, if I work really hard and apply myself, I could become just like them. I just like spent all the time just like thinking about, oh, but you could just live in that commune. That was obviously so much better. And yeah, so after like, 18 months of that. Basically, I realized I was going to have a nervous breakdown if I didn't quit. So I was like, I'm out of here. Then I just needed to like, you know, grow my hair long and ride on my motorbike for a bit. So that was like 2009. You know, that was a decade ago now. And a year of like getting that out of my system, I felt like now I need to do something that was like challenging. And I had two ideas. One was to, I was going to go to Australia. I was going to build the next version up of that previous boat, but say it's like Asia. And then I also had these computer ideas that I had been wondering about. I was like, I wonder if those would work. And when I stopped and thought about it for a while, I realized that obviously the, you know, all of the boat stuff is fun, but it's, it's sort of been done. So I'm not going to do something that's never been done before on a boat, but this computer stuff might be. So I started coding again and I'd been living in the forest, but I had like a hacker space in town so I could work in town. I had a computer there. And so I was like just doing loads of coding. I got pretty good at that. First, I was doing Java and then, because uh, that's what I'd learned at university. And then I realized, hang on, nobody cool uses Java. I'll switch to Ruby. And then some friend was like, that's pretty cool, but now you need to rewrite it in the language of the future. He's like, oh, he means this Node.js thing. So I was like, okay, I'll try this. And I just switched to Node.js and never looked back. So you're one of a, a group of influential people. And I don't, I don't mean to keep saying you're influential or you're <laughs> exceptional in any way, but there was a certain small group in Node.js at the beginning who made a lot of modules that then saw a lot of use. So yeah. you were particular, I mean, one of them would be event stream, right? <laughs> um, I believe that was yours. Yes. And just for, for comparison for our listeners who aren't familiar, how many modules would you say you've written for NPM or that are on NPM right now? Like last I looked, it was like 700 or something. Awesome. Okay. Um, so 700 modules, but a lot of them are getting millions and millions of downloads. Well, a small, a a small, a small of number of those. Are yeah. very, are very popular. Most of them yeah. are very little. And yeah, so around the time that I last checked how many there were, I also removed 400 of them from, so now those no longer appear on my name. So now it's like 300. So that's actually, that's what I'm really curious about. The, the reason I'm trying to frame this that way is because you've been under a lot of pressure for people who have looked at these really cool modules, which you made in your spare time for fun. You were coding for fun. Yeah. You don't do stuff because you feel like you have to do them, right? That was the whole thing about getting a job, right? I don't want to have a job. I'm not going to have one right now. And so what happens when you have open source modules that then 
everyone's like, uh, you need to maintain this forever. You need to fix this bug. How did yeah. you initially deal with that? Like when I started doing Node.js, Node was just a bunch of crazy people who were just having fun. And basically it was like, you know, rewrite everything from scratch. Like there was no like standard library or, or anything. And everything was like non-blocking and stuff. So you couldn't even like port other code directly to the stuff where we yeah. were like rethinking everything. And the appeal specifically for me was that only crazy people would be into this. No one was using it for their job except for like new companies that were crazy people. I remember Isaac once talking about a talk that he gave somewhere and someone asked, oh, but would you use it for your like actual like day job? And he was like, oh, hmm, no, you probably shouldn't. You probably shouldn't use it. You probably shouldn't use it for anything yet. <laughs> and then slowly, but actually incredibly quickly, it transitioned to now it's like, it's the default, like boring choice where that's what everyone uses for their day job. It's just the obvious choice because now there's so many, you know, there's definitely a module for everything you could possibly want to do. Yeah. It's just, and, and it's the language everyone understands. So it's like completely shifted from just being some cool kids in the basement or whatever to what Java was trying to be. I think it's been proven that every Fortune 500 company is using NPM some way or another. There's a current guest that we had on and I didn't really think about it until they said it. And I'm like, you know what? That's a huge impact. And you're right. It's not the cool kids anymore. It's everywhere. And yeah, it is kind of what Java wanted to be, ironically. So it's really interesting. Can I ask you one thing? So how do you get 700 modules do you consider yourself like a hoarder or what is it? Like, I would go crazy. I couldn't manage that many. How did you do it for as long as you did? I mean, you just like, you have a cool idea and then you're like, I wonder if I can make that. And then you just, you make it. I mean, most of them aren't something you're working on for months. Like probably most of them are stuff that I wrote in a day or less. There are probably days where I was writing three modules or something. If they did one, you know, just some simple thing. Yeah. Do you and Sindre ever have like competitions or do you guys like have like a secret society, like a conference for those who write the most NPM packages? I could just imagine you and Sindre like kicking it. Oh, it's not a competition. <laughs> um, yeah, of course we have a secret society. And, <laughs> um, and, it's called Scuttlebutt, And right? conferences and stuff. We had like an ISC channel where we had basically just invited the most interesting people that were doing crazy stuff. And we never like talked about it on like Twitter and like just got everyone to join. And then we would like have little, uh, like we had this one squat conf where yep. we just had our own conference. We kind of timed it with like some other like more boring conference that would like fly people in and then would be like, okay, now we're all in this place. Let's just have our own thing. The first one was at, actually literally like in a squat in Paris. And who was there? Oh, I was there. Substack was there. We didn't record anything and there was zero budget. Tickets were just to donate. I can't, I don't think we sold tickets. We just like, it's just, everything was just like improvised. But yeah, so stuff like that. Have you met Sindre? No, I haven't actually. Oh, really? Sindre is kind of a, he's a different piece. He's mostly working with web stuff that the Oakland hackers were sort of a lot more event stream stuff, a much more low level. One of the things I'm curious about, and that's really tough, is that was a really interesting time. 
before Node really blew up, there was a lot of people making really fun things that they wanted to do for fun. It was very much in the way of like the movie Hackers, you know, hack the planet. Let's just get in the basement and hack stuff because we want to. And let's wear rollerblades because why not? And now JavaScript's really mature. You have things like Node being run by a foundation, which is funded by very large companies. And it's a lot harder to maintain some of the low-level things because it's just used so often and they have so many different conflicting needs and you're not paid for open source, right? People don't get paid to release their software for free directly. They have to find other ways around it. And so what I'm curious is, what are you doing now? Or like, how do you see open source growing if it seems to always have this bent of, I make cool stuff and then it's not cool anymore and I have to move on to other things? Like, don't you see that burnout cycle being perpetuated forever? Like, how do you envision open source going forward or JavaScript going forward if it's not fun to work on? Does that question make a lot of sense? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of stuff to unpick here. And the way I saw it, so I always kind of knew that it was like what we were doing then was like a beautiful moment in time, but it wasn't going to last forever. Yeah. You know, I was like, my model was like punk rock. Yep. For example, that's just how culture works. Like you can't try and create like a, a little cool um, creative scene and have it change the world, but also stay the same. You could have something that's really obscure that no one else cares about. You could just have a few things or something like that, but that's not interesting either. But I think in a way this was validating and that it makes a powerful argument for actually how just actually having a bunch of creative people who can do whatever they like um, is actually an incredibly effective way of getting things done. Mm. that's actually where all the best open source starts. Do you have any um, reflections or thoughts around the shift in the overall view of NPM over the years? Oh, what do you mean? So for a long time, I guess before it became a corporation, I believe incorporated, before that, it was very much a open to everybody contribute. And then it became a business which obviously there's good reason for it to become a business, but what were your thoughts during that transition from when it went to just a project to a business-minded project? Oh, well, I was very cynical about that. You know, the best place is probably going to be eventually gets acquired by Microsoft or something, you know, something like that. And, you know, you can be too cynical where you're like, because really once it's a big company, it's like they just want to like keep it going. Like they're not going to like suddenly turn like completely evil. They're just going to be a, a little bit, but they're going to be a little consistently a little bit evil because that's most profitable. Like they just kind of like, they stop listening to you and start like optimizing for like the things that, that are profitable for them, like enterprise sales. Way back in the early days, and this was when there was like about a thousand modules on the NPM um, and, there was, and there was a website and you could search for the modules on it. And from where I was coding in my hackerspace in, in New Zealand, the response was quite slow. And I did a search and nothing came up. It was hard to tell the difference between that and just the search hasn't come back yet. And on ISC, I found the ISC Node.js thing and I talked to the guy who made it. And this was Michael who had made the website. And I was like, oh, it's, you know, if there's no results, you can't tell on a slow connection. And he just fixed it immediately, like in minutes. And I was like, wow, that was amazing. That was amazing. You know, because I was like, 
an ocean away from everyone. Like I was quite isolated there and didn't realize how I hadn't been to like any conferences or anything. Yeah, I was just blown away. It's like, wow, I actually like fixed that thing by telling him about that. Yeah. And so I did also manage to fix a thing in NPM more recently. That's kind of a funny story. So this was like a few years ago now, but there was this thing called pre-publish. You know, NPM has their scripts. So in the package JSON, you can have the test scripts or the install scripts. You could have a pre-published script that runs before you publish the module. But, and the idea is that if you like have a compile to language or something or some built output, you want to publish that, not the code that you're working on. Then when you do publish, it runs that script and then sends the stuff. And I was using pre-published scripts to run the tests and it would before publish and that would just prevent me from publish broken modules. But the pre-publish script had this weird quirk that it also ran when you cloned the repo and then ran install. And lots of people were confused by this or people would post issues that on your project that they did this and it didn't, that it failed. And there was issues and then you would go like, oh yeah, this is this no one issue on NPM. And then there was this issue was like thousands of people had commented on this, like, please fix this. And uh, everyone was just like, oh no, that's like, there's a good reason for that. No, we can't fix that. Like just, just go away. And they were like closing and locking those issues. Then people would create another one. It was like, and then someone would post the issue on your thing and you're like, look, like this is just this annoying thing. And then one day I came to the point where I was just like, I was just going to troll them about it. And I made a pull request to fix it, where I was like, NPM needs the literally switch. So you'd go NPM install dash literally, and it just does install and doesn't do anything. It only does what you tell it to. It doesn't try to do it anything clever. And then I thought of a better idea, which was like, just make a, another command that does another script that actually does the pre-publish. It was called pre-publish actually. It was like, actually does what you want, what you think a pre-publish should do. And I made this request mostly as like a joke, but it was only a couple of lines changed. It was like, and it actually fixed the problem. And that got a little bit of attention on Twitter. And then I met what the, like, the guy who was like the head maintainer at like the NPM on the, at NPM as like the company at the time. We'd like had a chat about it, a fairly serious chat. And I was like, look, like we can just fix it. And two weeks later, they didn't merge my pull request, but they added a script called pre-publish only. Yeah, so it like actually, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it fixed it. And I mean, it was, it's kind of like an ugly historical quirk, but it's not a breaking change. So it was the best way forwards. Mm. I like that. I like that. So here's a problem that you saw that you thought it'd be fun to fix that other people clearly needed, that you had the time and you just sounded like, yeah, I'll just try it. Well, I didn't think it would be fun. I didn't really think it would be fun to fix. It was more like the act of, but I did it like as a joke. Got it. Yeah. I trolled them into fixing it. <laughs> you know, that's like a thing you can do. Like you can prank people that you can't just, like you can prank your boss. And if everyone thinks it's funny, you can get away with it. I mean, in open source, you don't have a boss most of the time, right? No. The boss is your users, hypothetically. But the boss is actually your own conscience dealing with your users. Well, but um, the boss might be, like there are other people in who people who have other there might be someone else who maintains a module that you depend on or you 
you know, you use, you know, you don't have any kind of authority over them. You've got to convince them of a thing. Sometimes by pointing out the absurdity of something is a good way of convincing. Nice. People. So I have a question for you. If you've managed to make all these modules and have a good time and enjoy yourself and code cool stuff and sail on boats. Yeah. Um, how have you funded that? Because most people have to get a job to afford a boat. So oh, how do you fund your life? Oh, well, first of all, what I'm doing is way cheaper than living in a house and having a job. For the price I paid for my boat, I could have rented a room for one year. So that I paid for it with cash like nearly six years ago now. So even sunk tomorrow, I would be significantly ahead. And mostly that doesn't mean I have a big pile of money stashed because I mostly enjoyed that by not working very much instead of making extra money. Yeah, there's totally ways to live where you're like, you know, on the fringe of society and have much less expenditure and more free time. And like, you know, artists and musicians and stuff have totally figured this out. Yeah. And like every place has a way of, you know, have people that are doing things like this. New Zealand's particularly good for doing it on a boat, in my opinion. Well, it's islands, isn't it? So (laughs) yeah, it's pretty easy. Yeah. So how did I fund this? I've met a few people who just live strictly without money, but I think it's more pragmatic to have some money, but just not need very much to live within your means. So I had one or two, what you could call startup jobs. I've done some client consulting, you know, where you build software for people. For a period, I was just getting paid uh, to do open source development for Nearform, who organized the Conf EU conference. And for a little bit, even I was getting donations through GitTip, Gratipay. Gratipay, yeah. Yeah, which... Was not much, but it's at times did provide a buffer between things. And now I'm doing security auditing, which is by far my favorite, actually, because, oh, yeah. And some people like Secure Scuttlebutt got some grants and things like that. But to be honest, my preference is the security auditing because then I, it's like when I was doing stuff with Netform and they were like paying me reasonably well to just like do work on this open source stuff. Like it felt like there were some quite strong expectations, but it wasn't really clear what they were. Mm. But if you have like a straightforward day job, then it's like transactional and it's quite clear what your expectations are. And then you can separate the stuff that you're doing from fun with the stuff that you're doing for... Sometimes. Um, <laughs> it's not always the case, but yeah. Yeah. So I just like, and like I probably quite a few artists and stuff would better tell the same is that like getting paid for it can kind of ruin the fun parts. Yeah. I'm not like actually a terribly big fan of like schemes to like pay open source developers, especially the ones that are like based on some kind of charity thing. It's like just that either the like straightforward charity things like Gratipay were like then you never got very much money or you have strings attached or something. Right? Yeah, yeah. Or there yeah. or there are weird like tide lift. Yeah. yeah. I talked to them and I was like, oh, I'm not really into this. Yeah. Um, like, That's around what we have time for, unfortunately. Because we do have to get onto Spotlight where we point out really cool projects. It's a shame because I have way more opinions. To- <laughs> I know you do. What, what I really like about, actually about this interview is that it's been tough for me to get decent quotes or like 
to have a coherent narrative in some ways. And that's because <laughs> you're just a dude who enjoys making code and you're pretty good at it and you're pretty lean in terms of what you need from other people for that. You just do stuff that's enjoyable. Yeah. And when you don't want to do it, you stop. I feel like that's what most people should do in the first place. But when it's just so blatantly obvious and you embody, it's just like, cool. I yeah. guess that's that. Sweet. Awesome. Yeah. How's the sailing today? You know? You actually make me want to sell my apartment and buy a boat again. So that's Yeah, we can all we can all aspire to be like you, my friend. <laughs> the hard part is just deciding to do it. Yeah, totally. Hundred percent. I like my rocking chair. It's really nice. It's right there. It wouldn't fit on my boat. All right. Thank you so much, Dominic. Before we go on to spotlight, where can people find you on the internet? Where can people contact you if they want to do so or if you'd like to be contacted? Or you can probably get my attention on Twitter. Cool. What's your Twitter handle? Dominic Tar. Dominic Tar. Very easy. Two R's in Tar, like Johnny Tar, the yeah. drunken Scotsman. Good times. Yeah. All right. Spotlight. Eric Berry, what do you have for us? So I wanted to pick it last time, but I, I figured I'd give it a little bit of time. Uh, now that I've used it, it's become a tool that I can't get away from. That tool is called MimeStream. It's a brand new email client that uses the Gmail APIs. And now that I'm no longer running a business, email has calmed down a lot and my needs have changed. So MimeStream is actually perfect for those who are interested in just getting your email done and getting it out of the way. Awesome. Thank you so much, Eric. Justin? So I've been working in the Ethereum space for a couple of months and Gas is a big thing. You got to like watch out for what the price is when you're about to do a transaction. So my spotlight today is ethgasstation.info has been a really good tool for me to take a look at when I need to send something to someone and make sure that the gas is cheaper. Thank you. Gunner. Yeah, I'm going to hop over into client application land. I am really appreciating Signal Desktop. It's getting feature parity with the mobile client. And for the you know security trainings we do, it's so nice to have more things that people can do, like file exchange over Signal with ephemeral messages and never have to touch PGP on email. So I salute what they're trying to do to make it so my phone doesn't know I use Signal and Signal doesn't know I use my phone. That's still a work in progress. But Signal Desktop is definitely making a lot of security practices a lot more user-friendly. Thank you. I want to give a shout out to Scuttlebutt in general and Patchwork. If you haven't used them yet, they're super interesting. It's a decentralized social network where you can talk to people just using a decentralized social network. There's no nothing out there. It's not federated like Mastodon. It's much more like IPFS plus chatting and Twitter. It's really cool. Check it out. There's a really awesome video that introduces it. And Dominic, what do you got? The thing that's really, I think, fun right now is this thing called the Gemini Protocol. Hmm. It's basically sort of an indie web thing, but they're going further because they're just like, what if we just redid, we'll just rebuild the web from scratch, but not make it complicated this time. So it's like going back to HTTP1, but they're just redoing it from scratch with you know some of the lessons learned. And then people are writing browsers for it. So there's a whole bunch of stuff like that. Bunch of cool kids hacking away at awesome stuff, making the internet yep. better. Love it. Let's go back to Xanadu. All right, Dominic, thank you so much. It was a pleasure having you on the podcast. Fair season following wins. Thank you. 